0: In 1986, Harv Ringheim's daughter walked into the house for her weekend visit with her father. She walked into a horrific scene one investigator struggled to make sense of. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to day three of 12 Days of Crimelines, where I release daily episodes like a podcast advent calendar. I've chosen a bunch of cases on my topic list that are just too short for full Crime Lines episodes, and this is frankly one of the shortest ones. But it is a cold case that deserves answers. Not that there are cold cases I think don't deserve answers, that's a silly way to phrase it, but this is one that I think is solvable with current technology, and it has largely fallen off the radar as far as coverage goes. So let's go ahead and get started. Harv Ringheim was a veterinarian and ran a well-respected clinic called Diablo View Veterinary Medical Hospital in Pleasant Hill, California. That is in the East Bay Area. So we're talking about 30 minutes east of Berkeley, California. In the mid-1970s, Harv and his wife, Suzanne, sponsored a young woman from Japan for her student visa to study in the United States. This was Keiko Nagatomo. Keiko was very excited for the opportunity to study in the U.S. and experience a different part of the world than she was used to. Keiko lived both with Harv, Suzanne, and their two daughters and also in an apartment on her own. Eventually, Keiko returned to Japan and Harv and Suzanne divorced with the girls going to live with Suzanne during the week and spending their weekends with their father. By all accounts, the split was amicable enough. In 1984, Keiko returned to the United States and began a relationship with Harve. Things progressed quickly, and they were living together in the city of Dublin, which is about 20 minutes south of Harve's veterinary clinic. In March 1985, the two married. Their relationship seemed strong and stable in spite of their unusual start and also their 12-year age difference. They tended to keep to themselves as far as the neighbors were concerned, but not in a detached or unfriendly way. They were just private people. And Keiko stepped into the role of stepmother to Harv's two daughters. The girls would usually be dropped off on Friday evening after school by their mother, and then they would be home at the end of the weekend. They had a routine where their mother would pull up and watch them go up to the front door, Harve and Keiko always left it unlocked for them so they would walk right in, but not before turning back, waving to their mother to let her know that they could get in okay. And then she would drive back home. That's exactly what they did on Friday, January 24th, 1986. Harv's daughter Beth was nine years old, and she was going to spend the weekend with her dad on her own since her 13-year-old sister had something else to do that weekend. Suzanne drove Beth to the house, and she went up to the front door. It was right around 5 p.m. Beth usually found the front door unlocked, but closed. This time, the door was actually propped open. Not thinking much of it, she turned and waved goodbye to her mother, and Suzanne drove away. When Beth walked into the house, she saw something that would traumatize her for really the rest of her life. In the living room, her father, Harv, was lying, bound with duct tape. Nearby was her stepmother, Keiko, also bound, lying with her head in a bucket. Beth's brain couldn't immediately process what she was seeing, so she called out to her dad, half thinking this was some sort of bizarre prank. When he didn't answer, she ran out of the house to flag down her mother. But Suzanne was gone, so Beth went to a neighbor's house to tell them that her dad needed help. First responders arrived at 5.24 p.m., and after determining that Harve and Keiko were dead, they secured the scene with crime scene tape and began the very frustrating task of trying to figure out what happened. We have to remember that crime scenes, as the crime is being committed, are dynamic events, People are moving, and people are reacting. But when investigators arrive at the scene, what they get is a freeze frame. They get a snapshot of how things ended up and have to try to piece together how they got there. Aside from the living room where Harve and Keiko were found, the house was mostly very tidy. There were no signs of a forced entry, but the couple didn't always keep their doors locked during the day. They would also open the door if someone knocked on it. So it was still possible. It was a stranger who came up to the door, even though there were no signs of a forced entry. That said, there were some signs that this may not have been entirely random. For one thing, the most common reason for a home invasion is robbery, and there were no signs of that. There was a drawer in the master bedroom that had been pulled out and rifled through, but otherwise Harve's wallet and Keiko's purse were both in plain view on the couch, and nothing was stolen. A later inventory of the house did discover that there were small things that couldn't be found, but none of them were really valuable in any sense of the word, so it's not clear if someone took them or they had just simply been misplaced over the years. With the rifling through the drawer and Harv being a veterinarian, there is always the possibility someone entered the home looking for pain medication or heavy tranquilizers. But that doesn't necessarily explain what the investigators believed happened, and that is that Keiko was tortured. 29-year-old Keiko Ringheim was found with a two-inch strip of duct tape over her mouth, and her head was in a bucket of water. However, she had not drowned. Keiko had been strangled. The purpose of the bucket of water appeared to be to hold her face down in it as a method of torture, possibly trying to get some type of information out of her. And her husband, 41-year-old Harvringheim's body was found near her. He had his hands tied behind his back and he had been stabbed at least 10 times in the head, neck, and chest with the chest wound hitting his heart. He was left lying where he fell in a pool of blood. This home was not in a remote area. It was across the street from a high school that was in session that day and near an intersection. The police had hoped a witness had seen something, and they went over to the school to talk to the faculty and the students. But it just so happened that day was an exam day. While those classrooms that faced the house were usually in use, they were completely empty that day due to this testing. No one saw a thing. The neighbors, however, did have a little information and they were important for building a timeline. So let's go through that timeline now. The week of the murders, Keiko and Harve took a short ski trip, which is something they loved doing. They arrived home on Thursday, January 23rd, the day before the double homicide. The next day, the morning of the murder, a neighbor may have seen a man on their lawn. It would have been around 8 a.m. as the neighbor headed to work. The issue with the sighting is that the neighbor didn't think of it right away and came forward with it later. So it's possible he had the day mixed up since some time had elapsed between when he saw it and when he reported it. But he was able to give a description. He said the man was a white man, about six foot two, with combed back blonde hair. The man was wearing tan pants and a tan golf shirt. This description of his clothing sounds to me like a uniform, possibly a lawn guy, a roofing guy going out doing estimates, a delivery person, just tan on tan, screams uniform to me. The police did go to the media and give this description, asking the person to come forward, not as a suspect, but as a witness. If he ever did, it's not been reported. The next point on the timeline is two hours later at 10 a.m., Harv took the car to the car wash. It's not known where he went after this, and he may have just gone straight home. Around 1 p.m., some neighbors said they heard a commotion. They heard what sounded like muffled bangs coming from the house. It didn't alarm them too much at the time, but in hindsight, they thought maybe those could have been gunshots. But we do know from the evidence that the couple was not shot. That doesn't mean these muffled bangs weren't from slamming doors or some other activity from the house. Based on the evidence at the scene and the timeline, a theory emerged that the killer, or more likely killers, entered the house while Keiko was there alone and Harv was out at the car wash and possibly running other errands. They bound her and put the tape over her mouth. They then attempted to torture her for some information. However, there is no indication of what that information could be. There was a comment in the media that it may have been information about Harv, but they didn't elaborate on what type of special knowledge a suburban veterinarian would have. During the attack on Keiko, Harv came home at some point. He was also attacked and killed. The investigators have said that the killers spent time in the house, not just The time torturing Keiko, but time afterwards, cleaning up and leaving as little evidence behind as possible. We see cases sometimes that have tons of leads and none of them go anywhere, but this case was plagued with a different problem. This case had relatively few leads, too few in fact, and attempts to stir up more leads went nowhere. In 2006, 20 years after the double murder, the police offered a reward that was approved by Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was the then governor of California. They hoped this $50,000 reward would encourage people to come forward and tell what they knew. In 20 years, you would think someone's conscience would have gotten to them. Relationships would have changed. A secret you promised your boyfriend you would keep in 1986? May not be a promise you care to keep in 2006, particularly when you think about these families who are hurting because there has not been justice. Particularly Beth, who has to live with what she saw that day when she was just a little girl. Someone did that to her. Someone tortured and killed a couple. Is that a secret someone is really willing to cover up for? The police were hoping for $50,000 that person who was on the fence about keeping that secret would suddenly be swayed to unburden themselves. But unfortunately, that did not happen. No new significant leads were developed. In 2010 or 2011, they decided it was time to DNA test the evidence. When you test DNA, you destroy the sample. You can't redo a test on that same exact sample. So there are times where the decision is made to hold onto the evidence in the hope DNA technology improves enough that they'll have a better chance at getting the best profile they can down the road. Obviously, if you have a sheet that is covered in blood, you can test that now because you have plenty of material. But when you have something you think may just be touch DNA, you don't know that you have enough. Now, in 1986, obviously DNA testing in criminal cases was just becoming a thing, but it was known about, so the samples had been stored properly for a time when the technology caught up to them. In 2011, it was announced that they could confirm the presence of two killers, both male, at the Ringheim crime scene. These DNA profiles, though, did not have enough markers to run through a database. It appears there is more evidence that they can potentially test because the detectives have said they hope the technology continues to improve, and one day they'll get enough information from that evidence. They also said at that point that they believe this was a murder for hire and will be holding back their theories on the motive to protect the integrity of the investigation. So it does sound at this point that the detectives and the investigators have a very strong idea of what happened, and they are just waiting on the forensic evidence, the technology to test it, to get to where they can finally bring justice to this case. The families of Harv and Keiko, particularly Harv's daughter, who is now a therapist herself, they deserve to know what happened. They lost their loved ones and they just want answers and some form of closure. They don't know who did this or why, and those answers would go a long way towards healing. Until DNA technology reaches the place it needs to be for the evidence to give up more secrets, the best hope is that someone who knows something says something. Anyone with information about this case is asked to call investigators at 510 510- Six, six, seven, seventy four, seventy eight.